Well, good morning. If that hits too close to home, you don't have to laugh that loud. You know, I, I found myself in some of that conversation. Maybe you were elbowing the person next to you going, we do that too. And, and one of the hard things about Christmas time is, is this whole gift-giving thing and, and the challenge that some of us feel like we're stuck with identifying a dollar figure on a person's value in our life. Or we feel an expectation to buy people's gifts, and if we don't, then they'll have bad feelings about us. And, and for me, I, I grew up with a certain experience around gifts that informed the way I give gifts. Maybe the same happened with you. And many of us were either reacting to the way we grew up or we're reacting against it or we're trying to chart our own path. And, and when my wife and I met uh, and started dating, we began to see this play out in our relationship. I think this is one of our first photos of, of us when we started dating. And, and I can remember the, the first Christmas that um, I remember us giving gifts at. I know we gave one before that, but we had just started dating. And, 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 and for me, the way that I gave gifts was I believed that the best kind of gifts to give were the, the biggest and the most expensive. And so I was going to impress whoever I was dating with something large and expensive to show them how much I cared about them. That wasn't my wife's way. Her way was much more intentional. It was much more personal. It involved more of herself and involved more thought. And so the, the last Christmas we shared before we got married, um, 12 days before Christmas, I got a little card and it had a riddle on it. And that riddle ultimately led to an answer that was the name of a friend of mine. So I went to go visit that friend, and that friend had one box, and they gave me the box. And in that box was one gift, along with another riddle. And that riddle said, only open on tomorrow. So I opened that on day two, and there was a riddle there, and it led me to another friend of mine. And that friend had two gifts for me, and another riddle for day three. And this went on for day three, where there was three things, and day four, where there was four things. And this went the whole way through the 12 days of Christmas. Now, there was no golden rings, sadly. Um, luckily, there was no geese laying. That would have been too messy. But they were all gifts that had meaning and significance for me. One of the, I think she gave me um, three of my favorite energy drinks, because I was super into that at the time. I think she gave me four of my favorite shampoos. And they weren't really, you know, extravagant gifts, they weren't gifts that involved a huge um, expense. But if I started thinking about it, she had to think about who were 12 people who were significant for me. And then write the riddles out. And then go buy one plus two plus three plus four plus 10 plus 12 and do all of that and wrap all of that. And, and I have to tell you that there were things on my list that year that I wanted her to get me that didn't show up in the 12 days of Christmas. But 10 years later, I can tell you that all of those things would be broken or obsolete. And that gift I'm still telling you about today. And, and, and that, I tell that story because I think it reminds us that there's this struggle that we feel at the holidays, at Christmas time. And it evokes this question that, that can, can Christmas still change the world? Is, is the way that we're engaging the season and this holiday, is it actually changing us or changing others? Or is it just another year repeated more of the same? And last week we talked about this, this question of what does it mean to worship fully? What does it mean to make this season about worshiping Jesus and allowing that worship to shape us? Well, if, if we're going to worship Jesus during the holiday season, I'm convinced that one of the consequences of that is how we spend. And we said that this series is based upon four ideas, and the second one here on the screen is spend less. So if, if you got a bulletin when you walked in and you have a copy of our hand, I'd encourage you to pull it out. And there's an idea that I want to share through this morning that's going to inform this message. And that idea is this, that spending less creates space 
for us to give more. Spending less creates space for us to give more. Now, some of you say, Scott, that's not the most profound or insightful statement. That's pretty simple. But the truth is, many of us don't have space this time of year in our lives. There's no space for breathing. There's no space for going to the bathroom. And we've scheduled ourselves so busy that there's, there's no time for anything. And for many of us, there's no financial space. That if God wanted to move in our hearts for us to do something for someone else, there's literally nothing left for that. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through three passages of Scripture that I think give us insight about how spending less creates space and about how God is concerned with our money, not because he just wants our money, but he wants something more. I'm calling these three observations about God, money, and Christmas. And the first one is this, that our hearts follow our treasure. Our hearts follow our treasure. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus reminds us that there is a strong connection between our hearts and our treasure. And one of the best illustrations of that is in the book of Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus. Matthew was one of his disciples And in Matthew chapter 6, we land right in the middle of Jesus' longest sermon. It's the teaching that he gives in one fell swoop to try to introduce his disciples to this new reality that he's introducing called the kingdom of God. Some of the things he's going to teach them are counter or contradictory to the things they've heard growing up. And some of them are just difficult because they challenge the way that they live. While you're turning to Matthew 6, I want to encourage you, as Clovis said, to, to take this card seriously that says Christmas for Prescott. My wife and I were getting ready to go to bed last night, and we were talking about the fact that, that each of us have a unique set of relationships. There's people that had dinner at your house this week that I'm never going to have dinner with. There's people that you met at work that opened up to you that if I walked in and they knew that I was a pastor, they would shut down. But, but they're close to you. And during this season, whether it's an invitation to Christmas Eve or a phone call that says, hey, I'm thinking of you, or a moment that says, hey, how are you really doing? You have an opportunity to touch people's lives because God's put you in their life for strategic and supernatural reasons. And so whether it's somewhere where you live, somewhere where you work, somewhere where you study or somewhere where you play, I want to encourage you to take seriously the opportunity you have this season to have an impact in a place that I'm never going to get to. And if bringing them here for Christmas Eve is a way to help them with that, then this, this, this tool is a great opportunity. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins by saying these words in verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. He says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then go down to verse 24. Jesus later says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will love the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus gives us this teaching, I think, not just for an everyday season on the side of a mountain where he first delivered this sermon. I think he delivers it for today. Because the the truth is, for many of us, this season involves significant disappointment. 
we sing a song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and, and the rest of the story is that for many of us, it's also the most difficult or painful time of the year. It's almost also the most challenging. For some of you, it's the most lonely. A time that, that introduces a struggle with things like depression and anxiety. And, and during this time of year, Jesus says, hey, beware that you're not storing up for yourselves things in this world that will break down. And he uses three analogies. He talks about moths destroying things, things rusting, and thieves breaking and stealing. And as I think about the kind of presents that we often give, man, these seem to be great descriptions. You know, I don't have a lot of things that moth destroys, but somehow whenever Apple introduces a new update to their iPhone, mine stops working. And they release a new one that costs more, and I feel magically compelled to spend more money to buy a new one. Um, there are some of you, I don't know, but maybe you're going to walk out on Christmas Day and you're going to see a, a Lexus with a bow on top. And selfishly, because we're in church and God's here, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't envy you a little bit. Um, but that Lexus is one day going to break down, and it's going to rust, and it's going to die. And we know that this time of year, thieves break into homes more, because we know there, there are more valuable things there than normally. And Jesus says, hey, don't store up for yourselves treasure in places where things can just be destroyed or be stolen. You're putting yourself in a very vulnerable state when you do that. And, and I have to tell you that one of my favorite movies growing up was A Christmas Story. And there's that famous scene where Ralphie opens all of his presents and it's this chaos of wrapping paper and throwing. And he, he sits there with his brother and they ask that question, is that it? And you don't have to be 10 years old asking for a Red Ryder BB gun to deal with the dissatisfaction that comes when you recognize that you've been looking for treasure in all the wrong places. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to as a pastor who talked about climbing the ladder in their life or their job and they realized that their ladder was attached to the wrong building. See, one of the, the great realities of Christmas time, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, is that you deal with dissatisfaction. What you hoped to happen didn't. Where you put meaning and significance, you end up disappointed in. The vision you had of how life was going to go has not gone that way. And many of us, we spend then more and more and more trying to get that reality back. A question I've been wondering recently is, how often does our debt outlast our presence? I mean, some of us, were still paying off last Christmas while we're struggling to remember what we actually bought last Christmas. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just trying to tell you something about your money, I'm trying to talk to you about your heart. Because our heart follows our treasure, and wherever our treasure is, monetary or not, there our heart will be also. And Jesus spends so much time in the Gospels talking about money, not because he's so concerned with our dollars and cents, but because he's concerned with our hearts. Because the way that we spend our money is a reflection of our hearts. And this time of year, we spend money to try to gain the approval of others, to get them to like us more or not hate us more. As someone once said, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And go deeper and deeper into debt to do that. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't store up for yourselves treasure in this way. Store up for yourselves treasure where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
It's almost as if he's saying that we cannot worship God and money, especially at Christmas. And you might not say, hey, I'm not worshiping money at Christmas. Well, if your heart and your treasure are tied up in somewhere where you're trying to fill a void in your heart this season, apart from God, then God would say you're worshiping money. And many of us, though we don't like to admit it, we're trying to answer the restlessness and the dissatisfaction that we feel in this season with so many things other than God. And that's why we have to begin to spend less because it's a rejection of I'm not going to fill my soul that way. I'm not going to satisfy the restlessness and dissatisfaction within me that way. And spending less is a way to say, I'm going to pull back from that and I'm going to ask God to fill that space. Not only with him, but with opportunities to give away to other people. The second truth that I want to remind you of this season, it's an observation the scripture teaches us about God and money, is that contentment is the antidote to greed. Contentment is the antidote to greed. In the 80s, a movie came out called Wall Street with Michael Douglas, and the the key line in the movie was, greed is good. Greed is good. And that was a, a description of the 80s at a certain point. Everything was up and to the right. Everybody had more and bigger and better. But what we found in that movie and we found then as life went on was that greed is this insatiable hunger that's never satisfied. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul delivers one of his last letters to his mentee, a man named Timothy, and he challenges him about this idea of greed and contentment. Beginning in verse 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we, can take, we can't take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And if we did, everybody would miss their quarterly earnings for December. He says, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now before I go on, I want to make sure that if you have your Bible open, you see clearly the the correction to a common myth. Many of you have heard that the love of money is the root of all evils. And that is not what the passage says. It says that the love of money is a root. If we're speaking about English, that's a non-specific article. It says that there is a root along with others. But that that root, the love of money, it leads to all sorts of evil. So this isn't to say that every evil thing comes from a love of money and greed. But what it does say is that we ought to beware of money because the love of money is a root and it leads to all sorts of evils and it leads to all sorts of destruction because we're caught up in storing our treasure in earth and we're caught up in greed. Now, a few months ago, I did, I did a teaching on money and I made a comment that none of us have ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And then one of you was really funny and you found a photo for me. 
Now, I don't know if the person who sent me this took it, or they just Googled it really well, but I can no longer say that I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse because I now have. But one instance is not enough to correct the fact that Paul reminds us that the things that we store up in this world will stay in this world when we die. And we will not be able to take them with us. You may think that you can pull a U-Haul behind your hearse, but since you're not going to be in that hearse, only your body is, it's another reminder. And, And we live in a world that is constantly marketing us in contradiction to contentment. Every ad you've ever seen sows seeds of discontentment into your heart as preparation to market to you what they're about to sell to you. Modern marketing is built on a lack of contentment to make the pitch. And because we've never actually wrestled with contentment, many of us fall victim to that, whether it's an online ad, whether it's a Facebook ad, whether it's something in the newspaper or on television. We, we, we buy into these. And the question that I think begins to lead us to contentment that Paul answers here is the question, how much is enough? How much is enough? If you're wrestling with contentment and greed, the question you need to ask is, how much is enough? Because greed will tell you an answer. I can tell you, if you ask greed, how much is enough? Greed is going to say, a little bit more than I have right now. No matter how much you have. If you have 200,000, it's going to say a little bit more. If you have 70,000, it's going to say a little bit more. If you have 20 million, it's going to say a little bit more. See, until you can answer the question, how much is enough, you'll never get to contentment. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. And so if God provides us with food and clothing, we can be content. And it's this challenge in this season that many of us When we make our Christmas list, both the things and experiences we want, we're trying to satisfy a hole within us. We're trying to make ourselves happy and whole through the things and experiences we receive. And Paul is reminding us that that's an empty pursuit. It's a hamster wheel, and we're just going to keep running and running and running on it. Earlier this year, I was listening to a podcast, and it was not a Christian podcast. It's one of the leading podcasts in the country. It was downloaded this year, I think over 50 million times, this podcast. And the host asks his guest, every episode, each guest, he asks a series of questions. And the first question is this. If you could buy a billboard anywhere in this world, what would you buy? Where would you buy it? And what would it say? And it's fascinating to hear these guests answer this in different ways. And the one guest in particular that I remember from this year said, I would buy a billboard near a major shopping center and it would say, it won't make you happy. I don't know what you're getting for Christmas this year. I don't know if you're getting anything at all. But whatever you're hoping to get, I can promise you, it won't make you happy. Because I've got an iPhone 4 and a 5 and a 6, and you may have a 7, an 8, or an X, 
You may have started with a 1,500-square-foot house, and now you have a 3,000-square-foot house. Maybe your first car was a beater that you prayed over every time you turned it on, and, and now your car costs five, upper five or six figures. Maybe when you started as a couple, you would got by on ramen and spaghetti for two years because you didn't have the money, and you went to dinner last night, and you didn't think about the bill. But whatever's coming, I can promise you, it won't make you happy. If you're looking for what you get this year to satisfy your soul, it doesn't matter what that gift is wrapped as and how big or small it is. If you're trying to satisfy the restlessness within you, it won't make you happy. And one of the challenges for us in this world we live in is that we're constantly reminded not only of the things we want and aren't getting, but what everybody else has that we don't have. You see, comparison is the enemy of contentment. And comparison has never been more easy or accessible to us. In a different era, it was keeping up with the Joneses. You drive down the street and see your neighbor had a new car or they were moving to a new house. Of a different era, you'd go to Montgomery Ward and see what you couldn't buy. The Sears Roebuck catalog would arrive and you'd see all the things that you want but couldn't afford. Now you open up your phone and you're reminded of hundreds and thousands of other people who are showing you that they have what you don't have. And the challenge with your phone in comparison is you're comparing everything you know about your life with what they want to show you of theirs. You know that, right? You're comparing everything you know about you with what you know about them, which is not everything. And that comparison sows seeds of discontentment in your soul so that you're reminded that you need more than you have right now, and if you got it, you'd be as happy as they are. And that's just not true. It's a lie. See, comparison is the enemy of contentment, and comparison almost always leads us to greed. You know, we often think about the Ten Commandments, and we go, man, I didn't murder today, I didn't steal today, I didn't commit adultery today, I'm doing pretty good. But most of us break one commandment every single day when we go online. And it's called coveting. It's a word that we don't often use, but coveting literally means wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Wanting something that's not yours. And that could be a car, but it could also be a marriage if you're single. It could also be a picture of a family if yours is going through a difficult time and you see somebody's perfectly staged photo of their family. Now, you didn't see them all fighting five minutes before the photo came on. You didn't see the house they paid somebody to clean that they're now showing you on Instagram. But you're comparing yourself to that. And, and God is reminding us that greed is a never satisfied stomach. And so if we don't want to go the path of greed, the path we need to walk is contentment. Even if we don't like where we are right now and it's not where we intended on being, God is saying to you today, how much is enough? And have I abandoned you? Did you eat at dinner last night? Are you in a warm room today? I didn't see anybody walking here naked. That would have stood out today. God's clothed you. And many of you have so much more than you ever thought you would ever have. And we need to learn to be content. The third lesson that I want to share with you that's an observation from the scriptures about God and money and Christmas is that God's blessings aren't meant to be accumulated. They're meant to be shared. 
God's blessings are not meant to be accumulated. They're meant to be shared. And the Apostle Paul, he writes two letters to the church in Corinth. It's not called 2 Corinthians. It's called 2 Corinthians. And in in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to this church that before had a very terrible experience. As a side note, if anybody ever tells you they want us to be like the New Testament church, please ask them which one. Because you don't want to be like Corinth. Just read 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, though, Paul gives the church at Corinth an opportunity to pay it forward. The reason the church at Corinth exists is because the church in Jerusalem sponsored Paul's missionary journey to take the gospel to them. And now the church in Jerusalem is enduring a famine. They don't have enough to feed and clothe themselves. And so Paul's collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem, and he's inviting the church in Corinth to give back to those who blessed them. And in verse 8, this is what he says. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, God has distributed freely and he's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, he will supply and, set and multiply your seed for sowing and he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so you will be enriched in every way. Why? Why are we rich? To be generous in every way, which through us produces thanksgiving to God. He's saying to these Corinthians, God has given you everything you need from grace to wealth. Why? To spend it on yourselves? No, so that you can be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous in every way. An important question to ask ourselves this season is why did God give you what you have? God, why did you give me what I have today? Even if what I have is not as much as I want to have. Even if what I have today is not what I thought I would have. God, why did you give me what I have? The grace you've given me, the life you've given me, the friends you've given me, the stuff you've given me, why? God, why do I have this? It's not an accident, God. Why did you give me this? And this passage reminds us that God is supplying all of our needs so that we can be generous to others. So that not that we accumulate it, but that we share it. And this isn't a guilt trip. This isn't a, a laying on of a burden. It's a reminder that this is how God has always worked. Even in the beginning with Abraham, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you great. And through you, I am going to bless the world. From the very beginning of Genesis to the end of the Bible, blessings are given not so that people can be cul-de-sacs and hold those blessings for themselves so that people can be turns and conduits and pass-throughs so that God's blessings can go on. And the challenge is in the day we live now that many of you are dealing with fear. When it comes to the future, many of you are afraid. Maybe it's North Korea. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's a future that you don't understand. Maybe it's the changing racial dynamics of our country. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's technology. But when you live in fear, your temptation is going to be to hoard. To turn in, 
to be more concerned with meeting your own needs than caring for the needs of others. And in this time in which many of us are dealing with fear, we have to reject the temptation to look to ourselves, to preserve for ourselves, and instead look to God as the one who has provided for our needs and will continue to do so. And reminding ourselves the reason he's provided is so that we can share. You see, as Paul says here, even the sharing isn't about us. It's about God. He says, Corinthians, you're going to give, and they're not going to turn around and go, man, the Corinthians, they are so amazing. They're going to turn and go, God, you're amazing. Because the Jerusalemites are going to know that the Corinthians had money because God gave them money. And all of you have money because God's given you money. The hard part is that we want to encourage people who push back on greed when they're generous by by celebrating them. But if we only celebrate our generosity and we don't step back and go, why did I even have this in the first place? And if God doesn't get more praise than us when we're generous, something has gone terribly wrong. And one of the reasons I challenged you last week to to actually go back and look at how much you spent at Christmas time. Especially this week, were you serious? And I said, yeah, I was dead serious. Is that many of us don't take account about how much we actually do have. How much, how much we actually are spending. And where we actually are compared to where we used to be. For some of you, the Christmas you're experiencing this year was inconceivable 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, you lost your business. Or 10 years ago, you lost your job. 10 years ago, you said to the kids, hey, kids, we're not really going to have Christmas this year. We're going to have each other. And this year, you're buying them three and four and five gifts each. And that's inconceivable. And when we ask ourselves, God, why did you give me what I have? What's the purpose behind this? It reminds us that the purpose has to be bigger than us. One of the best things I read this year, and I'm not sure who said it because other people began repeating and I can't find the origin of this quote, But one of the best things I read in 2017 was these words. If you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a taller fence. If you wake up and find that you have more than you need, the solution is not to build a taller fence to protect it and hoard it. The solution is to build an opportunity for you to give more away. See, this is the story of John Wesley the famous evangelist who evangelized the the nation of England. Wesley, early on in his life, had an opportunity to give a coat to someone who worked in his home, and he realized that he'd spent more money on himself than he needed to, and he literally didn't have enough to give away. And so at that point, he said, I'm going to decide how much is enough, and as much as I make, I'm never going to spend more than this on myself. So the first year he set that number, it was 28 pounds, and he gave two pounds away. When he made more than that, he continued to increase how much he gave away, but he never spent more than 28 pounds on himself. And by the end of his life, even though he was a traveling itinerant pastor and evangelist, in modern day terms, he'd given millions of dollars away. Now, could he have found more ways to spend that money on himself? Absolutely. There's always new ways to spend money on yourself, whether you're living in the 1700s or the 2000s. But he decided that God's blessings weren't to be accumulated and spent on himself. They were to be shared. And so when he decided this much is enough, God continued to give him more and more, I believe, 
because God knew that John Wesley would share it. And so spending less for Wesley created space for him to give more. And that's the challenge that we want to introduce to you this morning. Now, I will say that there are some things that I'm leaving unresolved and out there. And you may go, Scott, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? We got to come back next week. Because this week is spend less and next week is give more. But before we get to that, I've got a couple things I want to throw out to you this morning. And, and just because last week you didn't think I was serious, I'm serious about all of these. I, I'm actually challenging you to do them. The first thing I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you this year to identify a budget for Christmas and spend within that budget. Identify a budget this year for Christmas and spend within that budget. Now, if you're like me, when you first heard the word budget, you thought that meant you couldn't spend money. Because everybody I talked to who said, I'm on a budget, they couldn't spend money. So I said, well, when you're on a budget, it means you don't spend money. That's actually not true. A budget is simply an advanced decision on what you'll spend in the future. Instead of being impulsive in the moment, it's saying, okay, how much do I actually have to spend? Setting that number, and when that's gone, your money's gone, and you don't spend more. And so I'm not telling you how much you're to spend at Christmas time. I'm just challenging you to pick a number that you actually have money for, not credit for, money for, and spend within that. Number two is I want to invite you to decrease by at least one gift this year. Decrease by at least one gift this year. Now, there's some of you in this room, you are fantastically amazing planners, and all of your gifts are purchased. And all of us are jealous of you. In my family, the Savage Men didn't start shopping until December 2, and not 2 as the only number, 2 as the first number. So I've not purchased any gifts this year. So I have a lot of freedom. Some of you have none, but you can decrease by one gift because you have that amazing thing called a gift receipt. And you could return that gift and create some space. Some of you could say, hey, I'm going to give one less gift to every person I give gifts to. Some of you with your family, you could pick and go, we're going to put all our names in a hat and everybody's only going to get one gift this year. Why? So we can create space. And you go, Scott, that sounds like I'm going to suffer for giving money away. Yeah, that's how it works. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard among those with the same income as us, then we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and we cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. He suggests that we should be having moments where I go, I want to buy this for myself, but I've actually thought of other people more than myself, and so I can't buy that. It'd be much easier if I told you how many gifts to give away or what percentage to give. This reality says decrease to the place that you're comfortable and go a little bit more. Why? So I can ruin your Christmas this year? 
No, because it's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about him. And in light of what he gave, that only makes sense. Number three, what I want to throw out to you this morning, is I want you to plan how you're going to be generous this year. One of the reasons we use the word conspiracy is that it involves other people. And so we want to throw out the opportunity for you to get together with your friends and your family or your small group and say, hey, let's do this together. This person that we know that has a need, let's figure out a way to be generous to them. This, this opportunity we have, let's get creative on how we can solve that. Hey, kids, how would you like to give money away this year? Every year at Christmas time growing up, there was a check sitting on my kitchen table in my plate on Christmas Day. And I got to decide who that check went to. And we'd go to the table and we would share the causes that we believed in, whoever was there at the table. And that's how we'd be generous as a family. That could be as a, as a family giving to the causes that we support here as a church. Or it could be beyond that. All I'm saying is plan a way to be generous and remember that generosity doesn't require money. Because some of you don't have money to give this year. And that may be a good thing. Because sometimes it's easier to give money than it is to give ourselves. And then number four, and this is my final one, I want you to share your story with us. In your bulletin, there's a little card. It's red. It looks like this. And it says, My Advent Conspiracy Story. And what we're inviting you to do over the next few weeks is as you think about how you can put this series into practice, these ideas into practice, as God moves in your heart, we would love to know that story. And so in the weeks to come, there's going to be a box in the lobby wrapped up with a bow on top with a little slot in it. And, and you can bring this card back and tell us what your family did, what your group did, what you did. And we're going to celebrate it, not because you're awesome, but because we want to thank God that he provided resources so that people could be conduits of his blessing. If you forget it, that card at some point, you can also go online to prescottcornerstone.com slash story and share your story there. This season is not merely about giving and receiving and dollars and cents. It's about our hearts. And in this series, we hope that what you take away is that we're challenging ourselves and each other to re-examine our hearts at Christmas time. And I want to end with this quote. The founders of the Advent Conspiracy said this, the only remedy to the problems we experience at Christmas is a change of heart. And the best place to begin is at the feet of the newborn Jesus. So my prayer is this week, as you think about what you're spending and what you're giving, that you would remember that what God is doing in the process is he's changing your heart. And when he changes your heart, everything else will follow. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you've blessed us. Nobody walked in this room naked this morning. Some of us walked in hungrier than we'd like to be. Some of us slept in a place that isn't as comfortable or as secure as we'd like it to be. Other of us, others of us are living in places, God, that, that if we went back in a time machine 15 or 20 years ago, we would find where we are today completely unbelievable. And in my own life, God, this morning, I have to confess that the reason that I'm sharing this today is you've been impressing on my heart, Scott, why have I given you what I've given you? And I can't believe the answer is for me to spend it all on me. 
At Christmas time, Jesus, you came and you gave of yourself lavishly and generously. For 33 years, your life was marked by anything but greed and consumption, comparison and covetousness. And yet we confess that so much of our celebration of your birth includes things that were absent from your life. And so we pray that you would transform our hearts in this season. That as we come to celebrate your birth, that we wouldn't just give and receive, but we would take hold of this work you're doing within us. That our hearts would be abandoned to you and that we would begin to align our lives with yours. God, help us to embrace the discomfort as the first step of change. And we pray that this year is a Christmas that we don't soon forget. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.cornerstone.com prescottcornerstone.com